Welcome to the Politics of Everything. I'm Amber Danes, your host and podcast producer. This is a half hour of power, a podcast dropping every week where I unpack the politics of everything, from money to motherhood, nutrition to narcissism, startups to secularism, the environment, quality, and much, much more. Our guests are seasoned in the field or topic of their choice, even if you've not heard of them yet. This is a non-partisan show. So while I love exploring varied views and get a buzz from a healthy debate of ideas, this is not a purely blue, white, green program. Please subscribe, tune in and enjoy the politics of everything. Manufacturing has changed the world with its focus on faster, cheaper mass production of items that we all use every day. Think smartphones, coffee cups, cars, even modular homes. My guest today, Ishan Galapathy, has a wealth of knowledge in the field of operational excellence, working across six countries for nearly two decades for big multinationals such as Kellogg's and Arnott's. In his last corporate role, Ishan was part of the team that developed Kellogg's Global Supply Chain Excellence Program. Renowned for his simplified techniques, Ishan helps manufacturing businesses to move them from chaos to excellence through productivity improvement and frontline leadership programs. With the pandemic last year highlighting how global manufacturing relies on more than just machinery and technology to keep us all fed, watered, clothed, decked out and even sanitised, now is a great time to discuss what this has meant for us all. When he's not working, you can find him playing backyard cricket with his sons or sipping a cup of coffee with his wife. Welcome to the politics of everything, Isham. Well, thank you, Amber. And what great times to join your program where there's so much talk about manufacturing. It's almost fashionable to uh, talk about manufacturing now in Australia. You're on trend. I'd like to delve back into your childhood, though. And did you have a dream job? And did you end up doing that? Well, like any other kid, I too had a passion, but it was to be a pilot. Um, And it wasn't just a childhood passion. It was actually a real thing because all the way until I went to university, I wanted to be a pilot. And right at the last minute, I don't know why I decided to uh, study aeronautical engineering at uh, University of New South Wales. So I didn't pursue it. But still to this day, I can get on a plane and the hair on the back of my neck would stand up as the plane's racing down um, that runway, which I haven't experienced for over four months now. I was going to say, <laughs> that's like a nostalgic feeling at the moment, probably for most of us. Certainly is, yes. But what I did was I actually moved away from um, aeronautical engineering and I need to probably do something about it by going into a flight simulator or something at a later date. But um I actually moved to studying mechatronics, which is all about robotics and automation manufacturing. That's what I did for my undergrad. Wow. And where did that lead you? What was your first job out of uni? Uh, Furthest from robotics and automation, I joined this company making aluminium windows and doors. And the most sophisticated piece of kit they had was one of those electric drop saws. And the operators would cut this long uh, aluminium extrusions and it makes those horrible noises that like, eek, eek, kind of noise. But what it taught me, Amber, is that there's a lot of opportunities on the shop floor if you can harness the power of the people. That's what it taught me. It's not so much in robotics and automation. Well, that's very interesting. So your business career obviously taught you a bit about manufacturing as your career went on. What sort of stuck with you about that, that sort of the lasting kind of uh, principles, if you like, of manufacturing that hold true despite, you know, things have changed from 20, 30, 40 years ago? 
as you said, I've been privileged to work with some of the multinational companies and through that I've been able to see some of the world-class companies in how they operate. And what it seems is that the world-class manufacturing companies play a different game to most small to medium manufacturers, particularly in Australia. And I think it's true to other countries as well. And the difference is this. The world-class companies operate on a system where they reduce their the cost structures year on year. So there's a cost reduction focus. But most of the companies here in Australia, we focus on cost cutting. It's not just play on words. They are very different principles. And there are systems and processes and structures that you can put in where the outcome becomes cost reduction. And that's been the focus of my work, particularly in the last five years. And my new book, Advance, is also focusing on how to teach companies to implement these systems in place. Look, I know manufacturing for many of us has a bit of a yesteryear feel to it. And I know big countries like Australia and the US and even parts of Asia have decided to sort of move away from manufacturing in the past two decades or three decades, stop making those big ticket items like cars and even home appliances in, in favour of fast technologies and maybe different industries. Do you see this as a mistake and why or why not? It's it's such a complicated question and um, a situation, isn't it? Because I think it's a little bit like being a parent, right? You know, as we, you know, when we are nurturing our children, we make the best decisions at the time with the information you have and the resources you got. And I think uh, investing in these big ticket items, as you called out, is a little bit like that. Now, I can only think that the governments and the people in charge of making policies would have done that for the right reasons that made sense at the time. Now, we can pick this apart in retrospect, but what holds true is, particularly if you look at the car industry in Australia and down in Adelaide, Melbourne, not only that sector, but it does provide a lot of lot of uh, job opportunities and a lot of other industries that support the indus- those big ticket industries itself. So I, th- I think it does help. And, and I think what the, the governments and the businesses need to work together to kind of make the best we can for as long as we can. Interestingly, you know, the the removal of manufacturing devastated lots of big economies and communities. I think of Detroit in the, in America very famously, who kind of never really bounced back once those stable jobs of manufacturing and big industry kind of left. Was Trump right? Was former President uh, Donald Trump right? Try and bring manufacturing back, or was that just something he he kind of toyed with but couldn't really get off the ground? I mean, what was your observation of that period of time where he talked about bringing manufacturing back to America and it being the future in many ways? And I wonder whether this is a good lesson for us to look at and and learn from whether America has left the that sector, particularly in Detroit, the, the, the car man industry, for too long before trying to resuscitate. And I wonder what lessons we can learn in Australia, particularly at a time where Australian manufacturing sector has dwindled to just 6% of GDP, of what it used to be 30% back in the 1960s in its heyday. So it, it's kind of at this bottom and and we've seen obviously a focus in the last 12 months to resuscitate this ailing sector. And I hope that, you know, we can learn as much as we can without playing Democratic or Republican party politics, you know, what we should be focusing on to get this sector back on the move. 
Interesting. So the pandemic last year meant obviously borders closed for Australia to say China and other important supply chains that we really have become reliant on. And so everything from our laptops and even our lounges and everything we kind of use in our day-to-day life was kind of suddenly not necessarily at our fingertips when we wanted it in that sense. Do you think that was a bit of a turning point in how perhaps Australia and other nations thought about their self-reliance of, of manufacturing, that it wasn't necessarily just about being part of the global economy, but about, about being self-sufficient. Was there merit in us thinking about that? Yeah, the pandemic has certainly given some constrained thinking for many businesses to think, to, to reimagine their business model. I was talking to somebody who was furthest from manufacturing, actually works in um, IT and telecommunication, and this business owner was telling me that a lot of the suppliers, a lot of his customers now, actually ask if there are products coming from China. Now, that could be because of the, the, the trade situation we've got with China. But going back to your question, Amber, I think the pandemic has given a lot of opportunities for businesses to look at new ways of working. And I think what we've got to look at is never to take granted for for, for the businesses and the, the business models we've got, but always to think in terms of what if. So, yeah, so I think the pandemic itself has opened up uh, opportunities. For example, we know that there was only one real manufacturer who could make fa- uh, face masks in March last year. But within a short period of time, when we realized that uh, a lot of the supply chains are disrupted, all of a sudden, we found other manufacturers who retooled and re-kitted to make face masks. And all of a sudden, we found tenfold supply within the country. So how do we look at these situations to continually evolve, to continually improve our capabilities, and never, never rest? And I think, I think it was Jack Welsh uh, back in his day that said the famous quote that he said so elegantly that, when the change outside is more than on the inside, you know the end is near. And I think that's so true. So how do we always stay ahead it is something that we need to look at, not only in Australia, but I think globally. I think the challenge was none of us saw that coming. And so I think next time we would definitely be hopefully better prepared. And like we, like you mentioned, face masks, sanitizer, all those things were in such short supply, but mm. pretty quickly you know, we saw manufacturers able to sort of evolve and change and basically adapt their businesses if they had that sort of technology available exactly. um, to and supply the market. Yeah, true. In the past, Amber, I've seen companies actually forcing them to think um, in constraint models. So one of the things for factories is that they have spare capacity and that puts them at a very relaxed state of mind in terms of, oh, that's okay, we can always make it up. You know, you can make errors. So it's easier if you have capacity to kind of operate in that relaxed mode. And I've actually seen businesses actually working in a constrained mode saying, no, we will only manufacture four days out of five. We'll keep the fifth day up our sleeve. So again, pushing ourselves, what would happen if we have to operate under tighter conditions? And I think that's a good practice for businesses to kind of try because that then trains or kind of exposes uh, the gaps in our processes. So, yeah, uh, I think you always got to think about what could you learn if your uh, business came under different constraints. Absolutely. We definitely pressure tested that a bit last year. And obviously <laughs> the 
government has a role to play. And I know that, you know, they were very big last year, the Australian government particularly, talking about that shift to manufacturing. And we use the hand sanitizer example and one that they've kind of said, well, we did so well doing this. I mean, this kind of agility in the sector obviously can benefit us long term. But I guess what else needs to happen so it's not just something that we kind of do and then we, we go back to how we were? How do we make sure that this is this manufacturing sector is here to stay? Yeah, I think what we've seen is just the movie trailer. The, the real movie is about to come. And I think the, the, the sector has responded to the need and it's shown that it is resilient. It's not the Detroit that we spoke about before. And I think it's it speaks of this, the sector. It also speaks about the, uh, the Australian spirit. So what we need to do is support. The Australian government has come up with a new funding system and there's a lot of areas that they're focusing on. And we've heard the $1.5 billion investment to resuscitate the manufacturing sector. They're certainly the right things. One of the things I've seen in this government um, investment schemes is that it's heavily focused on technology and automation and this industry for technology, which are great. But what I've seen is there's a lot of gaps in fundamental uh, operational excellence processes that's preventing from actually develop, uh, delivering a better return. The Australian Supply Chain Institute conducted a study with the University of Technology in Sydney. They compared the supply chain maturity across 2018 and 2019. And what they found was this. Despite the, of the Richter scale advancement in technology and automation, our overall supply chain maturity has come down by six percentage points from 52 to 46. So what this tells us is that we are going after these new shiny objects and toys, but technology has its place, but we can't use technology to fix fundamental gaps that are missing. And, and this has been the key focus um, in, in my new book. And it does sound like there's, a, there's obviously a huge human element here. That, that's what you're emphasising. The people are really important in this manufacturing world that we're looking at. People are important and processes are important. And it just goes back all the way to my first job that we spoke of, that there's a lot of opportunities if we can harness the power of the people to solve the problems. Because the, the, the difference between uh, looking at a profit and loss statement and a general manager trying to cut costs is that you only see what's on the PL. But if you talk to the people on the shop floor, they will actually sh uh, give you a lot of opportunities that's not appearing on your PL. Um, and this is how, even when I worked with a lot of the multinational businesses, I've, I unearthed a lot of opportunities simply by talking to the people. So you can't, you can't underestimate it. And most importantly, you can't just do that in an ad hoc way. And this is what those world-class companies have mastered, is that you need to have a regular cadence on how you engage with your people, identify these opportunities, and then implement initiatives to actually deliver the benefit to the business and to the people. And, and this is the framework that I speak of in my, in my book. So in your book, Advance, you unpack how businesses can collectively form a simplified operational excellence framework that I guess it, it allows them to improve their bottom line year on year. And it sounds amazing. It sounds like the silver bullet they're probably all looking for. And the core of that framework contains three parts, implement, unlock and focus. 
Can you share in a more tangible way how that can easily benefit manufacturers of all shapes and sizes? I know your passion is for the small manufacturing sector, for example. Absolutely. And, and this has been a distillation of what I've seen over the last two years, particularly looking at how these world-class companies work and w- what's missing. There's a lot of jargon, like in any industry sector or like with any, any system, but what I've tried to do is stay away from jargon as much as possible. And this is the simplified version. So yes, there are three core parts in terms of implementing, unlocking, and, uh, and, and focusing. So imagine implementing as how you want to shift your business forward. It's how you want to advance your business forward. If I talk to a lot of the general managers, managing directors, there's no shortage of ideas or strategies or where the business wants to be in three to five years' time. But what we mo- uh, many of us struggle with, Amber, is in trying to actually implement ideas and those initiatives in a structured way. Because when things happen like we've seen last year, albeit it's an extreme scenario, uh, we get distracted and we go off course. So it's not so much in preparing and planning, but it's the implementation. So I share tools and techniques on how to basically stay the path and implement. Unlock is probably the, the one that I love the most, and I could probably talk about it for, for a whole day or even perhaps a whole new podcast um, on its own. <laughs> this is where how do we identify, prioritize, and solve structured problems. These are the, the, the constraints or these are the problems that hold businesses back from preventing, from moving forward with ease and with, with pace. Uh, so it's that whole agility part. So again, it's not due to lack of problems. I think businesses try to implement or solve too many problems. And I've seen businesses thinking that we can do so much and so soon and they burn people out by trying to do, you know, unlock these problems. So what I always say is stop starting, start finishing. Yeah, great advice. So if you can stop starting, yeah, if you can stop starting and start finishing, that's the way to go. And the last piece is on focusing. So while you're playing this game of trying to shift the business forward and trying to reduce the, uh, the friction that's holding its back, Who's keeping score of the scoreboard, uh, so to speak? So what systems can you put in all the way from the shop floor, all the way to the, the management team in terms of keeping a finger on the pulse? And they're important not only for communication, but also to give a, per- give a sense of are we winning or losing at any given point? And I think that's, you know, how do you kind of gamify it? But at the same time, how do you get insights? in terms of if the business is tracking in the right direction. So all those parts, there's 12 12 elements, 12 essential elements, as I call it, uh, that would provide a simplified um, operational excellence framework. Sounds awesome. Manufacturers, get onto it. So to change tack a little bit, if you had to choose a favourite book, song or film that always speaks to you or inspires you, what would it be and why? I think it's easy to talk about a book. One of one of the books I absolutely love is Good to Great by Jim Collins. And I think... Oh, me too. Life-changing, that book. It is, isn't it? And uh, it's hard to come by a manufacturing business owner or a manufacturing or supply chain leader who hasn't come across this book. And again, what it shows is that, yes, there are some leadership traits, but also there are things that you need to do in a structured way 
if you want to be a really great business. What Jim doesn't talk about is then, you know, what are the what are those building blocks? So I absolutely love um, Good to Great, um, which is kind of a classic. Right now, reading um, Infinite Games by Simon Sinek, and it's a different mindset. I mean, he's 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 written this book on uh, James Carson. I think uh, James Carson uh, wrote the the initial concept, but it's this thing about being ahead or behind, not so much winning or losing, which I think businesses would benefit from adopting, particularly as you look at sideways to your competitors. It's not about winning or losing, but I think if general manager or businesses think, are we ahead or behind? I think it's a healthier way of reviewing and analyzing. I'm, I'm only, you know, in the early chapters, but uh, I'm loving it. It's already singing to you, which is great. So some great recommendations there. As we wrap up our chat today, would you have any final thoughts or tips or ideas for people navigating the politics of manufacturing? Absolutely, Amber. I can distill down this whole operational excellence. I can remove all the jargon and there's only one thing. And that is about how do you advance your productivity forward? And to be able to do that, you need to do two things. It's about how do you reduce your day-to-day noise and how you advance on an year-on-year point of view. So if you can manage the day-to-day, you can then focus on improving year-on-year. And what this actually means is that you just got to manage day-to-day and lead tomorrow. That's great advice. If you do want to connect further with Ishan or find out more about his book, I have some details on our show notes. You have been listening to The Politics of Everything. Until next time, keep well. Thanks so much for listening today. If you've enjoyed the politics of everything, I thrive on your feedback. So please add a short review and share the podcast with your network through Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. I'm always on the hunt for new and diverse guests. So if you or someone you know has a fresh idea you're busting to get out there, please email me at amber at amberdanes.com and my crew will get back to you very soon.